Zacchaeus. I've entitled this A Big Change for a Little Man. And today we're going to be looking at one of the favorite, most well-known Bible stories around. And if you grew up in church or went to Sunday school, you might remember a song that went something like this. Zacchaeus was a very little, little wee man, or a very wee man was he. He climbed into the sycamore Say he wanted to see, and then the story goes on. I don't know, I can't remember. But Jesus comes and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house for tea. <laughs> How many of you remember the song? Uh, why do only two of you sing it? <laughs> okay. So that's the story we look at this morning. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho, just by the way, this is only recorded here in Luke. We don't find a similar or the same story in the other Gospels at all. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I thank you for the incredible privilege that you give to us to see with our own eyes and to hear with our own ears the very words of God. And I pray that you would help us this morning to see clearly what it is that you would like us to see in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to do again this morning a verse-by-verse walkthrough, and then at the end I've got a few lessons just to share with you. But before we start, the picture you see on the screen is a sycamore tree, sycamore fig tree in Jericho. Uh, That particular tree I've seen with my own eyes. We were there a couple years ago, and it's been dated as over 2,000 years old. So it's quite conceivable that this is the very tree under which Jesus passed, although it could have been a number of any trees. But if you look really careful, you might see the exact branch upon which Zacchaeus sat. (laughs) So let's go. Verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho. Now Jericho was at an elevation of about 250 meters below sea level, and Jericho is also the only, or the oldest rather, inhabited city in the entire world. It's famous in biblical history as the first town attacked by the Israelites under Joshua after they uh, 
cross traversed the Jordan River, and that happened about 1,400 years before this story. Uh, Stefan, I'm getting a bit of an echo here, if you can just deal with that. After Jericho's destruction by uh, Joshua and his crowd, remember they marched around 13 times, that's why the number 13 is, is listed by some as being unlucky, but they ended up going around 13 times. Uh, after the destruction, it was, according to the biblical account, abandoned until a, game, a guy named Hael the Bethelite established himself there in the 9th century BCE. 1 Kings records the story. Chapter 16 says, In Ahab's time, Hael of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. And Joshua had pronounced that anybody who <coughs> rebuilds the city, this is what's going to happen to your firstborn and your youngest son. And he did that in Joshua 6.26 for those who are interested. Joshua, we know, is mentioned many other times in the Bible. Now, in dramatic contrast to its desert surrounding, because all around Jericho is desert. Jericho thrived as a fertile, spring-fed oasis. In the Old Testament, it was often called the city of palms for its abundance of palm trees. It was strategically located as a border city. Ancient Jericho controlled important migration routes between the north and the south, the east and the west. In Jesus' day, this Jericho was the place for the rich and the famous. It was an affluent city. In fact, Herod the Great built his winter palace near here because of its warm climate and fresh water springs. This is the same Herod that gave the order that all boys under two years be put to death when he heard that the king of the Jews had been born. He died in 4 BC in his palace in Jericho. So Jesus enters Jericho, the Bible says, and was passing through. See, he was on his way to Jerusalem where he would be tried and be put to death. This is right near the end of his life. And in Jericho, we see one of his last personal encounters, encounters en route to his final suffering. Just before this, Jesus had healed two blind men near Jericho. One was unnamed and one we know. His name was Bartimaeus. So his reputation as a healer and a miracle worker was well established. And in fact, he had done these miracles just very recently, including that one in Bethany where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And Bethany was only about 15 miles away. So the swelling crowd that would have been around him passing through Jericho would have been, uh, would have been pressing in on him. And then the Bible says this, well, there was this man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy or rich. Zacchaeus, interesting choice of name by his parents. An abbreviation of Zechariah, but meaning the righteous one, pure or innocent. A big name to live up to. His parents were obviously hopeful. 
And perhaps his parents were still alive or not, seeing what their son had turned out to be, maybe. The name is such an antithesis for Zacchaeus. He's the chief tax collector in Jericho. Probably the provincial tax collector. Now, tax collectors were not necessarily bad. Even today, we don't like tax collectors. doesn't mean that they're bad. The Bible says we are to render to Caesar what he Caesar's. So this isn't the condemnation of tax collectors generally. But these tax collectors in those days were somewhat different. They were agents of the Roman Empire collecting taxes for Caesar. And that wasn't the problem so much as the wide authority which they had to prosecute those who did not pay. But also to set whatever rates they wanted to. Rome demanded X amount. And as long as Rome got X amount, those tax collectors could collect whatever they wanted to over and above that amount. Now, Zacchaeus, the Bible says, was wealthy. He was rich. He had accumulated large amounts of money. And in all likelihood, it might have been illegitimate money. But what made it worse is that he was a Jew. There's a double betrayal here. Not only is he afflicting his countrymen, but he's doing someone, doing this as someone who's professed loyalty to Rome through his actions. He, he was a traitor. Zacchaeus fell into this class of hated sinners and tax collectors, traitors, Jews working on behalf of the despised Roman overlords. In these days, this was not just a job. This was the most hated job that you could hold as a Jew, a tax collector, and he's wealthy. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. Obviously, as I mentioned, Christ had a reputation by this stage, uh, previously healing blind Bartimaeus just a day or two before in this vicinity. So the crowds would have swelled. And we have this poor little Zacchaeus. Maybe we should call him Danny DeVito. You know, Danny DeVito <laughs> from the movies. Imagine this short little man who doesn't have any chance of physically seeing him. Not only because of his height, but also because of his profession. He was an outcast to the Jews. Now, the people in the know have worked out that in those days, the average height of the average Jewish male would have been between 5.1 and 5.5. That's short anyway. I'm, I used to be 5.9. I might have shrunk a little bit. So this guy would have, the highest man in those days would have been this height. For, that, for them to say Zacchaeus was a short man. I mean, he was like a god gnome. You know, he must have been a tiny little man who had no chance in his physical stature to get anywhere near Jesus. And this is a large crowd pressing against the miracle worker. Verse 4 says, so he made a plan. He ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. 
That sycamore fig tree is a tree which in the tree trunk resembles a fig tree, but its leaves resemble those of a mulberry tree. So it's often called a fig mulberry. As you saw in the picture, it has wide-spreading branches and afforded wonderful shade. Zacchaeus knew the route that Jesus would take, obviously passing through a town. Maybe there weren't too many options. He could have turned off, perhaps seeing the direction of the crowd. He rushes ahead and climbs this tree. Straight away, there are two problems with that. Number one, Jewish men didn't run. Because it seemed undignified. It wasn't a thing that a Jewish male would do. Which is why I firmly believe I've got lots of Jewish blood in me. (laughs) Or because of my knee replacement, I'm not sure. One of the two. But the other reason was they wore dress like garments. And it would be unbecoming of a Jewish man to be sitting on a tree exposing themselves to those who are walking underneath but Zacchaeus when he heard Jesus was coming he ran ahead he climbed that tree just to catch a glimpse of this Jesus verse 5 when Jesus reached the spot he looked up and said to him Zacchaeus come down immediately I must stay at your house today can you even imagine the scene Jesus in the the this crowd of people pushing against him, trying to walk through the city of of Jericho, stops and looks up. He makes eye contact with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus makes eye contact with him. I mean, he must have been properly ensconced in that tree not to fall out at that point. If I was Zacchaeus, I would have just tumbled down, you know. This is the man I want to see. And now he's looking up. And not only that, he starts speaking to me. Christ says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And that stay is a lot more than tea. Stay likely means overnight. It means disrobe. It means make yourself, make myself comfortable. He probably was going to spend the night at Zacchaeus' house. Friends, this was more than just a casual appointment. This wasn't a chance meeting. This was a divine appointment. Jesus wasn't going to stay over at the chief rabbi of that area's house. He wasn't going to stay over in somebody who was popular or famous or anything else. He's going to stay at Zacchaeus' house. Not the person of impeccable character and reputation. He's staying with the chief of sinners, the despised in the area. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Look what Christ says. I must stay at your house today. Do you get it? This is not random. Stuff doesn't happen randomly when Jesus is around. Your life is not a series of uncontrolled events hoping not to collide into each other and become too messy. When Jesus is involved, we can trust him. Zacchaeus, 
I must. He didn't have an option. I must stay at your house today. John 12, Jesus explains this. I didn't speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus knew that he was going to meet Zacchaeus. He must come immediately and that he must come, he's got to go to stay at his house on that day. So he came down at once. This is Zacchaeus. I mean, I I would have, uh, 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 clean house, uh, 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 forgot to make the bed, uh, uh, didn't wash the dishes this morning, uh, all of those things. Zacchaeus welcomes him gladly. No reservation, no conditions, no inhibitions. By the way, this is not the first time we find Jesus with this class of people in the Gospels. He seems to make a deliberate habit of doing so, which severely irritated the religious leaders. Zacchaeus would not even have been allowed near the temple because of what he is. We see another example when he did that with Levi. Matthew, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi or Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him. Remember a few weeks ago, I said if you eat with somebody, it means acceptance in a real sense. It's fellowship there. For there were many who followed him. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. I mean, surely, if Jesus was the Messiah, they would have been saying, if Jesus was truly the sent from God, if he, this miracle worker, if he was sent of God, he wouldn't sit down with this group of people. This, this, this class of people, we don't associate with these people. And it irritated them. It irritated the demons inside of them. See, the problem with the religious crowd is not that they were religious as much as it was about what they were religious about. And I know the English teachers will moan at that sentence construction, but I don't know how to say it. It wasn't about the fact that they were religious. It was what they were religious about. That was the issue. This was not the religion of Yahweh according to the Old Testament. They had elevated the Mishnah, the interpretations of the scriptures, to the same level as that of the scriptures, and sometimes above. This was, in actual fact, a bastardization of the Torah, a misrepresentation of Yahwehism, and it is what caused Jesus frustration and ire over and over and over again. 
It wasn't that they were religious. It's what they had done with the religion of the Old Testament that infuriated him. Matthew 20 to 29 is an example. He says to them, you are in error. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Matthew 23, we have a whole series of woes. I'll just look at some of them. Verse 13, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mental and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Where? Found in the Old Testament. They had used their bastardized version of the scripture as, as the standard that people should follow. They weren't following the scriptures. They were following their oral tradition. And that's what angered Jesus. He said you should have worried about the more important matters. Justice, mercy, and, and faithfulness. Verse 25. Woe to you teachers of the law of Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. Where is that in the Bible? But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish. And then the outside will be clean. Verse 27. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. Which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? (laughs) If you're not aware that Jesus was angry, he was angry because they had destroyed the Old Testament with their oral traditions. He was angry at how they had taken his word and twisted it to mean what they wanted it to mean. And let me tell you, they have never repented of this to this day. God is still angry. The only reason we see the miracle of modern day Israel is because of the consequence of the promises of God that he would one day return them to their own land. The reason Israel is together again is not because of any good thing they have done. It's because of the good promises that God made. They have never turned their back on this religion that was being practiced in the day of Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. They crucified their Messiah. They never accepted the one to whom the the Old Testament prophets had prophesied. I do not believe, as believers, we should be kitschy-cooing national Israel. We are part of spiritual Israel. We have been grafted in. And we are glad at the promises of God and the protection of God over that land called Israel. But we've got no right to cozy up to a bastardized religion. We should pray for Israel. We should love her. 
as the scriptures have commanded us. But we are not to blindly support a secular Christ-rejecting nation. And some of you are getting cross with me, but prove me wrong from the scripture. The same thing that angered Jesus is the same thing that nation believes now. A religion without Christ. A religion without Christ. Jesus made it very clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Anyway, so when the people were muttering, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. This wasn't the first time, like I said, this was Jesus' habit. And he addressed their hypocrisy over and over again. I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, Matthew 21, are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Matthew eleven nineteen. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Now we don't know exactly what was said at this stage at Zacchaeus' home. Though we do know Jesus and what he always spoke about. <laughs> the kingdom of God. So while it's not written, we can be pretty sure that the next verse is in response to a conversation that Jesus has had with Zacchaeus about the kingdom. Verse 8 says, Zacchaeus stood up, or stood still, stopped, and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. You notice he calls him Lord. He calls him Lord. My Bible says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, he calls him Lord. This is Zacchaeus' confession of faith in response to the master's behavior and perhaps speech. Here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So the people are muttering. Zacchaeus says, Lord, half of everything I've got, give to the poor. There was not one legislation in the Old Testament, a percentage of what to give to the poor. Zacchaeus, on his own accord, as a fruit of his repentance, of his salvation. He just somehow gives away half of all he's got. Not only that, he says, if I cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times. Levitical law taught you if you stole, you had to pay back what you stole plus 20%. Imagine that in our country today. Hey? Somebody steals your big screen TV and you get a TV back 20% bigger. Hey, vote the scriptures, people, vote the scriptures. (laughs) But he doesn't say 20% according to Levitical war. He says 400%. Not going to give 20%. If I've cheated anybody, 400%. Now we presume Zacchaeus was a bribe-taking cheat. That's the reputation he would have had. 
It's quite possible that his reputation was not fair. Maybe it was unjustified. He says, if I've cheated anybody. Maybe he was more like his name described, righteous, pure, and innocent. We don't know that, and the text is not clear. It's just that he fell into that class, and he was treated like that class. But I wonder how many of the mutterers did anything even close to what Zacchaeus was prepared to do. How many did even close? Verse 9, Jesus said to him, today, 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 today salvation has come to this house. So if you didn't know Zacchaeus was saved before then, you know by Jesus' pronunciation he is. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. Jesus affirms him. Jesus declares that salvation. This is a son of Abraham. This is true righteousness. Unlike those mutterers out there. This is a son of Abraham. It's interesting that the only people in the Bible that this phrase is found about. Son of Abraham. There's only two people in the whole Bible. Jesus and Zacchaeus. Jesus in his lineage And Zacchaeus at this point, son of Abraham. Quite amazing. And then we have verse 10. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. Let me tell you that this is Christ's mission to earth in a nutshell. He didn't come to overthrow the Romans or as a political savior. He did not come for social justice or to establish feeding schemes, although he fed the hungry. He didn't come to change the status of women, although he did that very radically. He did not come just to heal our bodies, although we see him doing that all the time. The scripture says he came to seek and to save that that was lost. This is the whole mission of the Bible. And it began in the Garden of Eden. It began in the Garden of Eden after the first couple had sinned. Rather, Eve was deceived and Adam just plain sinned. Since then, Almighty God has been seeking to save, to restore, to renew what was lost. The whole mission of the Bible in a single sentence. So I'm sorry to upset your Sunday school song. But the story is not about a little man who climbed a tree who served Jesus with tea. The son of man, the story is about the son of man who came to seek and save what was lost. He did not come to have a lukewarm church celebrating a godless festival that was Christianized in about 300 years after Christ, which is coming up on us quite soon. Won't mention it, just so you'll listen to me till the end of the service. Some of you will get so cross you'll switch off at this point. He didn't come for that. He didn't come to dress people in flowing garments, swinging smoke around, bowing down to his earthly mother, Mary. He did not come to make people feel good about themselves, living their best purpose-driven life now. Jesus came for this one reason, to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus knew Zacchaeus was lost. Zacchaeus knew he was lost. 
Romans chapter 3 tells us, As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one, say no one, who seeks God. We are not able to in our own flesh. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, in his pride, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts, there is no room for God. John 4, 23, a time has come and is now come where the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers what? The Father seeks. Now I know in the scripture there is a huge mount in the Bible that calls upon man to seek God. But it starts with him. He came to seek and save the lost. If he had not come to seek and save the lost, we would never, ever have been able to know salvation. I've got three minutes for three lessons. Question number one, has he come to your house? You see, he has an appointment with you today. Unless you're deaf or can't lip read, I've read the words of God. This isn't just a book with words in. This, these are the words of God. And he's here today with an appointment for you can you see his gaze saying to you come down immediately come down from your place of pride or your lofty area or whatever it is I must come and stay at your house today 2 Corinthians 6.2 says now is the time of God's favor now is the day of salvation so I want to challenge you here this morning Do you know his salvation? Do you know that you have been saved? Watching me online this morning, have you an absolute unassailable assurance in your heart that you have met with the Savior? Lesson number two. This is so exciting. He knows your name and address. Even if you live as a social outcast with physical limitations that send you up a tree, he knows your name and address. Just as he sought out Zacchaeus, he seeks out you today, where you are and who you are. Psalm 139 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 15 says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. I was watching a debate just yesterday or the day before. That just makes me weep. Somebody demanding nine-month abortion. When the Bible is so clear that life begins at conception. Your unformed body, before there was anything there, God knew you. God knew you. You want to know why our country is so violent today? 70 murders, 70 people being murdered every single day in South Africa by violent means. You want to know why? Because their blood cries out to God from the ground. The 1st of February 1997, our Christian government passed an act called the Termination of Pregnancy Bill. 
It's murder. And the blood of those children is on the hands of people. 2024 is an election year. And I pray to God that before you even look at anybody who you're going to vote for, you make sure that your party doesn't represent abortion because that is murder. I would rather vote for no one than vote for a party that advocates murder. And I'm telling you now the two biggest parties in the land both advocate murder. The legal slaughter with taxpayers' money of pre-born babies, unformed in their mother's wombs. And we call it health care rights for women. Beware. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. He knows you. As you sit here, as you watch today, he knows you. Lesson three, I lied, there's four lessons, I only thought there were three. Do whatever it takes to meet the Savior. Zacchaeus was was unconcerned about the people, the opinions of people. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Hebrews 11, 6, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So there is a role that we have to play as well. While Jesus came to seek and find Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was there as well. And I don't understand it always or ever, but somehow we have to play our part as well. Climb that tree, open your Bible, get to that church, make that phone call, speak to somebody. Most of all, turn to God. Do whatever it takes to meet the Savior. The last little lesson today. For those of you who have met him, repentance always have fruit. So often I look at my own life and think my fruit's not worth eating, it's bad. Don't know if you feel like that sometimes. But here's Zacchaeus. Half of everything he gave to the poor. Four times. 400%. If I've cheated anybody. See, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what the people in Jesus' day were trying to do. Do stuff apart from him. That's what Jewish people do today. Those who are not born again by the Spirit of God, by the blood of the Lamb. They can do nothing apart from Christ. Here we see this big change for this little man. It's only when we know how small we actually are we can expect a big change. And it begins with repentance. Acts 17 says he commands all people everywhere to repent. Amen. This isn't a wishy-washy Jesus. Zacchaeus demonstrates that repentance, that repentance that he had by the fruit of his behavior in response to our mighty Savior.